This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. We have a very special opportunity tonight on Martin Luther King Day to speak and meet with an artist whose entire career has been about the aspirations of Dr. King. It's a UCSC's pleasure to present at Park and Market and to the San Diego community, someone who I think and many of us would agree is a true American genius. And that is our friend, Terrence Blanchard. I thought, rather than just ask you a bunch of questions, I thought we'd have a conversation. And sure. I certainly would like to wind up talking about your performance tomorrow. Give us sure. a little heads up on that, on that very unique ensemble. Mm-hmm. And also to talk about your operas. Sure. I had the pleasure to see... Thank you. I had the pleasure to see the premiere fire up, uh, up in my bones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear more about that. But let, I'd like to start from the beginning, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, there clearly is something unique about the city of New Orleans. You're mm. not the only genius to come out of that. <laughs> And I there's think been, been uh, if we were to ask the audience, they could name this, the yeah. next dozen who right. we all have listened Families to. Families, too. Families, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm the well, one that's the only child. So. You're the only child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it about that city that has been sort of the breadbasket of American culture? I think part of it is the fact that um, we're not starstruck in New Orleans. You know, people who, are, who have come up in the world of music, um, do so because they love music, you know. Um, we've had so many musicians, as you guys know, that have gone on to become, you know, world-renowned musicians, very famous. But when they come home, they're just musicians. And some not-so-famous geniuses. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, there were so many stories about musicians uh, who were not from New Orleans, who would come to New Orleans to visit or play a show, and then they would go wind up and go out and hang out and hear some other musicians and get their hearts broken. Uh-oh. You know, because they would hear some local musicians, local talent that would really, on a high level. Um, I think it really boils down to us just really having a passion for the art. And I'll put it to you like this. You know, growing up in New Orleans... When I would run into other musicians, we'd always talk about music, what you're working on. Man, I heard this guy play this. Man, this dude here, he does these things that are so unique. Those are the types of conversations I would have. When I moved to New York, it was about, they cool, but they ain't really doing this. You know what I mean? It, there, was a, there was a negative, competitive thing going on, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, it threw me for a loop because I was so excited about moving to New York. Um, because I thought New York would be a bigger version of New Orleans, mm. right? And when I got there and I ran into that type of attitude, it it caught me off guard for a second. But what I started to realize was that attitude didn't come from the greatest musicians on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. All of the greatest musicians that I ran into in New York didn't have that attitude. And then I started to realize that the, they had to be this separation. And we hate to think this way because we all want to put everybody on the same playing field. But we, you know, and Art Blakey was the one that made me st- start to think this way. He said, don't think like a local musician. 
He said, you're here to play music that goes around the world and you're gonna travel the world and you have to be mindful of what's going on outside of your local square. Um, but I think that's one of the things that we, we kind of focus on in New Orleans, you know, and it's, I love going back home, man. Well, the, the few, the few times I've been to New Orleans, uh, sorry, New Orleans. Don't worry about that, man. That's, 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 yes, that's a marketing thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I grew up in New Orleans. Everyone I met, so. everyone I met was a musician, played an instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, checking in at the airport, and the <laughs> yes. guy behind the counter, I can't remember what airline, though, he was, yeah. I, I saw his trumpet case lying down. Of course, I gotta t- I'll tell you a funny story. So, um, Tim, uh, Tim Jackson, uh, who runs Monterey Jazz Fest, so he comes to New Orleans because there's a, the, the, we used to have the Jazz Educators Convention in New Orleans, and as a result, my wife and myself, we were going to throw a party for all of them at our house mm-hmm. <laughs> one night. And this is typical New Orleans. So he he gets out the cab and he's coming in the house and he starts to tell me all about my high school years growing up in New Orleans. Telling you. Yes. And I'm like, what? And he goes, oh, yeah, uh, your friend Renee Peters, that was his dad that was driving the cab. He told us all about you on the way here. <laughs> Family. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's, that's the thing I love about New Orleans. We have that type of familiarity with each other. When I bought my house uh, in New Orleans, the first house, man, they put it in the paper, the cover of the lanyard section, the Sunday section, mm-hmm. had my address and how much I paid for the house. Yeah, and I was like, really? Okay. Yeah, a little too personal. But the cool thing about it was I was in my yard one day, one Sunday, and this car pulled around, and it parked, and I went, oh, my God, who is this? It was three of my high school teachers. <laughs> oh, three of my high school music teachers. You know, they knew, they heard that I'd moved back, they read the article, and they, they would always have uh, coffee on Sunday mornings, and they started talking about me, and they just... Came by the house one Kept day. Kept the conversation going. Yeah, and then I got it. I felt proud because I'm like, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be doing this stuff, you know? Yeah. But there's something very special about that city. And it's not just the music, the food, the dress, the languages. Uh, Everything. The patois. Everything. Uh, uh, Leonel Luweke, who's a guitarist, is one of my students. He plays with uh, Herbie Hancock now. Uh, he's from Benin. The first time he came to New Orleans, he said, man, this feels like home. Uh-huh. And I went, wow, I, I never thought about that in that way, but I can see that, it especially should. when it comes to the culture and the food, for sure. You mentioned Art Blakey. Uh, we want to spend some time talking about that experience. But just before you played with Blakey, mm-hmm. you had a stint with Lionel Hampton, Hampton yeah. and you were, what, 18, 19 years old? Yeah, I was 18. That's some education. Tell me about it. <laughs> you tell me about it. <laughs> you tell me about it. <laughs> um, Paul I mean, Jeffries. Paul, well, I got to get when I moved, when I went to school. I went to Rutgers University. And Paul right. Jeffries, who was a tenor player, he used to play in Glonex Monk's band. Um, he was running the program, and when I applied, they didn't have any housing, so I wound up staying with him at his home until they found me a place to stay on campus. Which I didn't stay on campus. I wound up staying in the house with these other guys, um, and it was interesting because he played with Lionel Hampton. Mm-hmm. And he had to do a gig. Uh, it was a couple of weeks before school started. 
And then he said, hey, man, why don't you ride with us, ride with me to the gig? Because, you know, Hamp's band always rode on the bus, on these, these big Greyhound buses. And he told me, bring your horn. Uh-oh. Right. That's what I, I was like, oh, okay. So I brought my horn. We drove from New Jersey up to New York to catch the bus to go back down to Philly, which what? is funny. Um, um, and when I got on the bus, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things, man. There was no place to sit. Every place. Yo, hey, young fella, that's my seat. Move or get out of my seat. That was, uh, I wound up back by the bathroom. Um, but I wound up talking to some of the guys. And when we got to the uh, venue, one of the trumpet players said, man, pull out your horn and play. I mean, they were getting ready for sound check. And uh, we were just milling around. Hamp walks up behind me. And uh, he calls everybody champ because he can't remember anybody's right. name. Uh, hey, champ, let me hear you play a blues with the piano player. So I played a blues with the piano player. And he said, uh, I'm going to call you for some gigs. <laughs> And I was in the band the next week. That, that was it. Yeah. So I started touring with them, man. And Curtis Fuller was in that band, great trombone player. Frankie Dunlap, great drummer who played with Sonny Rollins, was in that band. Uh, I mean, uh, Oliver Bina was a great trumpet player who was like my big brother in that band. Uh, they all embraced me. That was the thing that was interesting about it, man. They, they just took me under their wing. And I just learned a lot being in that group you know, uh, for about a year and a half. Yeah. So that was the sort of b being brought up in the old school. Oh, definitely. I mean, Curtis Fuller, man, he would always, <laughs> you young fellas want to play too many notes. <laughs> 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 he said, I want to hear you play blues right here. And don't you dare double up. 12 to the bar. Yeah, yeah. Don't play no fast notes. Just play the blues. And I was like, do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> Can, can uh, I pick the key? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, you know, just being in that group, listening to those guys play every night, you know. Frankie Dunlap was an amazing drummer, man. <laughs> there was a moment during the show he would trade with Hamp. Hamp would get on. They had a set of drums for Hamp. Mm. And, of course, Hamp, I don't know if you guys remember in the 70s, Ludwig used to make this drum kit that had lights in the, yeah, yeah. In the inside. Yeah, so, of course, Hamp, Hamp had to have the one with the lights on it. And uh, they were supposed to be trading fours, four bars each, right? But Hamp would get excited, man. So <laughs> sometimes his bars were three and a half. They'd be five. They'd be seven. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were never four, right? But the amazing thing about it was you could never tell because Frankie Dunlap was right on. Right him. with him. Oh, my God. It was the most amazing thing to witness. Yeah. And uh, that kind of education most young musicians don't get. And that's really kind of unique because I think young musicians historically go to New York to do the hippest thing. Right. Well, here's the thing about bypass. that. Here's the most important thing about that education was the historical part. Those guys talked to me firsthand about do you know what it's like for an 18-year-old kid to talk to Curtis Fuller and hear him talk about John Coltrane? Mm -hmm. Not from some stories. No, like, man, when we did the record with Train, I was like, stop right there. Stop. <laughs> Say that again? You know what I mean? Um, that's, that was a big thing for me. And listening to Paul Jeffries talk about being with Monk. Frankie Dunlap talked about playing with Sonny Rollins. Mm -hmm. You know, those were the stories that I used to hear 
all the time. And not only just the playing stories, but how those guys developed their craft and how serious they were about their craft with all of those things that stuck in the back of my mind about, okay, so what are you going to do? Right. You know, um, we all heard the famous story about Sonny Rollins not feeling like he was up to the task, so he took two years off to practice. And he would, to the he bridge. Would, yeah, he was up on the bridge playing, practicing. That story in itself was something to hear firsthand. It's one thing to hear it as folklore. Or read about it. Right. But when you hear it firsthand, because... Paul Jeffries and Sonny Rollins were good friends. They were really, they were really good friends, man. So, um, I'm, I, I was doing a, I'm laughing because I was thinking about another story. I was doing a rehearsal at a friend's house. His name was Bruce, Bruce Barth, right? And Sonny Rollins had this series where he would feature young artists doing a concert at Carnegie Hall. So I'm at Bruce Barth's house in Brooklyn. I don't know how Sonny Rollins got the number to that house, right? But his wife goes, Terrence, Sonny's on the phone for you. And I'm like, who? And all of my friends, if you know the jazz folklore, everybody imitates Sonny Rollins. You know, uh, yeah, how are you? Everybody, everybody has their own Sonny Rollins imitation, right? So I pick up the phone. And you knew somebody was clowning you. Right, he goes, Terrence. And I go, it's Sonny. I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And it wasn't until he said, Paul has told me a lot about you. And I went, oh, my God. This is this real. Is Sonny Rollins. <laughs> and then he said, I want you to play a show with me at uh, Carnegie Hall. And I went, sure. <laughs> and this is the thing that just, like, scared me to death. He said, we're going to make history. Oh, Lord. He's, he's done that over and over. And, and you know, <laughs> The whole event was just so funny to me, man, because in rehearsal, he was just, he was amazing. He was very gracious and uh, scary at the same time because, you know, he had his, we were working on some tune and Tommy Flanagan was on the gig. He was the piano player. So he said, hey, Tommy, what's the, 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 the chord, the second chord? And his mouthpiece is going back and forth like this. And as soon as his mouth, the mouthpiece gets here, he goes, oh, yeah, F7. <laughs> Years. You know what I mean? Years. And he was really nice. Come show time, he was really serious. Wouldn't speak to me. I would imagine leaving that band. And did you go directly to Blakey? When I left Hamps Band. Uh, direct, mm-hmm. So that was the old tradition, older tradition being handed to you. And Blakey looked forward. I mean, he always oh, had young cats in the band. Yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a culture shock, you know, because not only was I going from, a, from Lionel Hampton to our Blakey, I was going from a big band right. to this small ensemble where I had much more responsibility. And Art Blakey wanted us to write for the band. Right. You know, because I was replacing Winton in the band. And uh, it, Art told me, he said, Winton told me, you you write. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, well, well, bring out your compositions so we can play them. And he had a photographic memory, man. It just blew me away. He was the type of guy, he was always late for rehearsals. Really? Right. And then he wound up making me the musical director. But he was late for rehearsals. And it, I didn't understand. So we would just sit around. And he got me twice like this. Where he comes into the rehearsal late. And he goes, what you got? Which means we should have been we rehearsing. We should have been rehearsing. You know what I mean? So he only got me like that twice. Next time we had a rehearsal, I said, come on, man. Let's learn all this music. So we'd learn the music. 
and then we play it for him. When he walked in? Play it, and then he said, all right, let's go. And then he said that, and then he, memory, he'd play it down. How, how long did he keep keep a band? Because it just seemed like every two or three years he was turning the band over. It, it, it wasn't him. It was the guys in the band. You, you, you would join that band, and automatically the spotlight was on you. Because, right. you know, it's, it's like going from college to the pros. Right. You know, because you're in our Blakey's band. And it started with Lee Morgan. I mean, before him, but Lee Morgan yeah, was yeah. the one that really had that, made a name for himself. And everybody was looking to see who was going to be the next trumpet player, Freddie Hubbard and so forth, Woody Shaw and so forth and so on. And then, of course, you know, Winton had come before me. So, man, as soon as I joined the band, everybody was like, who is this kid? Yeah. And then they were like, another one from New Orleans? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, so there was a lot of attention uh, uh, being paid to, to all of us. Um, but, you know, Art was really good about that, though, because I, I, I'll never forget. It's one thing. I think one of the things when you were talking about the New Orleans thing, one of the things that sh- shifted for me was playing with Art. Um, I had to think about, like, music in a broader sense, you know, because as soon as he joined, as soon as I joined the band, Man, we were at Sweet Basil's. I'll never forget it. And uh, I can't tell you the way he said it because we're in a public forum, but <laughs> but you'll get the gist. <laughs> you know, he said, forget Dizzy. Forget Miles. Forget Freddie Hubbard. Forget, he named all of my heroes. All previous chairs. And uh, he said, forget all of them. You're here to be you. And when you leave this band, you're supposed to go get your own band because we have to keep pushing this music forward. Branford tells a very similar story. Oh, he did it to everybody. Yeah. He did it to everybody. And it, it, was, it was a wild thing because you got to understand, prior to that, all of my teachers were telling me, you have to study Dizzy. You got to study Miles. <laughs> you got to study Fred. You know what I mean? And so, he said, throw the book away. Right. And I get in his band, he's like, nah. <laughs> Branford's story is that uh, uh, he was uh, copying out some John Coltrane solos and Blake, Art Blakey walked by and said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm practicing this uh, Coltrane lick. And he said, well, do you think John Coltrane practiced Coltrane licks? That's <laughs> 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 so the same story coming out of a different way. Oh, man, he got me with the Miles Davis stuff because I thought I was, I, I wanted to be Miles Davis so bad. I love when I got a cold. I think we all did. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, I was playing My Funny Valentine and I never played a melody, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, Margaret Miller was the piano player and he would hit these chords and I go, and that, that's all you would hear. And then I started playing all this other stuff, man. And he let me go for about three nights with that. And I think it was in Paris someplace. He says, you got to play the melody. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody wrote it. <laughs> play it. Play the melody your way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, he got me really good. He says, yeah, learn how to play the melody, goddammit. <laughs> how, how old was Blakey when you joined the band? <laughs> Woo! Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody I thought you knows. know. 
Because he used to tell us, man, Lionel Hampton had the same thing. Lionel Hampton had this press kit that went out. Man, he was 65 for about four years. Oh, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he so, recorded Weatherbird with Louis Armstrong in 1924. Come on. I'll go figure I mean? that. Right. So with, 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 uh, with Art, he would never tell us. He'd say he was, I forgot he said he was 60 or something like that. And then this one guy who knew him back when he was uh, playing with Billy Eckstein goes, Oh, what you talking about? You know you're 70. And Art gave him that look like, yeah, you look at these people in the room. wonder if we could turn to, um, uh, you've had such a remarkable career, not just as a jazz soloist and jazz composer and band leader, but you've seemed like you've made turns and added on to your interest, your, your portfolio. And I wanted to chat a bit about uh, some of your albums. In fact, the tribute concert tomorrow is mm -hmm. a tribute to uh, Wayne, Wayne Shorter. I noticed, let me ask you rather than make a declaration, many of your compositions have some of the same tendencies of Wayne Shorter's. Oh, definitely. Not to, to copying, but I think no. you're, you're born out of the same seed, the conceptual ideas. Well, yeah, the, the, the thing you got to remember, and this is why I'm a big proponent of education, man. You know, I had great teachers. I mean, great teachers. I feel blessed with all of the teachers that I've encountered throughout my life, from Martha Francis, who's my first piano teacher who lived next door, so I could never miss a lesson. Oh, you had to be there. Right? To, to, to Miss Winchester, who at the age of 12 started making me do theory and, and ear training. Then Roger Dickinson, when I studied with him at, at, at 15, he started making me compose. Right? And, all, and all of these guys would, would challenge our thinking. You know what I mean? So when I started hearing Wayne Shorter, his music resonated with me because his music seemed to challenge the status quo mm -hmm. without making a declaration. Right, right. You know what I mean? So he would write these, it's, it's one of the things, is a pet peeve of mine. When, when a lot of times some artists try to find something different by avoiding what's right in front of their face. You know what I mean? So there are beautiful melodies out there that are beautiful melodies. There's no need to avoid doing them to do something new. When I, when I started listening to Wayne Shorter, that it resonated. I'm like, these melodies are beautiful, but look at what he's doing with the harmony. Yeah. The harmony underneath is changing, you know? So I use him as a, as a, as a model when I'm teaching my class, man. You know, um, I have this whole thing that I go through with Wayne's music and I show them I'm like, listen, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's just about a little bit of a shift that can bring new color and life into a situation. And here's the thing about Wayne that really blew me away because that was the analytical and theoretical side of me breaking down Wayne's music, right? Mm. There's a great documentary that hasn't been released yet about Wayne. And when it comes out, man, all you guys should really watch it because what you're gonna find out is that all of those compositions that Wayne has written has a personal story. All of them. I mean, they have a personal they story. They came from somewhere. They came from something that he felt and wanted to say. So that was the next lesson for me. It's like, okay, you can have these theoretical beliefs and, and ideas, but sometimes if it's not connected to anything real, is it really gonna resonate in somebody else's heart? His playing is very personal. It's not. Oh. It's not even the saxophone. I think I have, I've always had the impression he was singing. This dude, he's hilarious to me because he's a comedian, and a lot of people don't really 
catch it. But, you know, we were doing something at the White House one time. And right before we went on, <laughs> he tried to play a note on his horn and nothing came out. And he goes, dig that. <laughs> and we were like, oh, what's wrong, Wayne? <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking something's wrong with his horn. And he proceeded to go out and just play his behind off on the show. Get your attention. Oh, it was incredible. Incredible. Uh, Nathan East asked me to ask you uh -oh. where you came up with your uh, arrangement of footprints. Uh, Wayne, <laughs> Wayne showed a composition, which yeah. is already a very complicated composition. Yeah. Well, tell Nathan I had nothing to do with it. Okay. I had nothing to do with it. You know, what happened was I had an appendicitis. and uh, That's a story. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was because I was playing a gig and thought I just ate something wrong. Um, the next thing you know, I told a guy, I said, man, I, I was in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I said, man, I think I need to go to the hospital. And uh, <laughs> that in itself was such a weird thing because I'm in the ER and, uh, man, I'm in pain. My side is burning. And the doctor, the female doctor, uh, older woman, and she came up to me and she gave me some morphine. And I said, doc, I'm still in pain. She said, well, morphine doesn't kill the pain. It just makes you not care about the pain. <laughs> so she said, but I'm going to give you another, another dose. And I'm like, boom. So she did the surgery. And when we woke up, when I woke up, you know, we started talking. And they said, they tell me you're a musician. I said, yeah. She said, well, who are you? <laughs> so weird. Fayetteville, Arkansas, in a, in a recovery room. Uh, she goes, well, who are some of your, uh, your favorite trumpet players? I said, oh, I love Miles Davis. And then she goes, oh, I love his straight tone. I'm like, where the hell am I? <laughs> well, you're not a very good witness of Yon Morphine. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. I told him, don't give me morphine again. It's too good. Yeah. Yeah. It's too good. Uh -huh. As they say, habit farming. When oh, my God. It, it, uh, what are the, the footprints is on Oh, uh, footprints. All right. Yeah, so that's yeah, what I'm yeah, yeah, that's what. All right. So I had an appendicitis, but we still had a tour, Right. And so what we did was we allowed the guys to finish the tour. And, and then I'm convalescent. I'm at home. <laughs> then I come back months later. We, we're playing in New York. And we've been playing Footprints. So I called Footprints. And they started playing this groove. Boom, 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 The Rob Glassberg? No, no, no. No, Eric Holland. Eric Holland. Eric Holland. Eric Holland and uh, Aaron Parks. And Derek Hodge, that was the band at the time. And I'm like, no, 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 Footprints. And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's what we find. <laughs> right, 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 right. So we just kind of developed it from there. So it was, it was They came up with the groove, and then we started messing around with the melody. So you took an already complicated song, made it even more. And the <laughs> interesting thing is that's basically blues. Yeah, it is a blues. But you know what was really funny? Wayne called me up and said, Terrence, I got to get that rhythm. I got to get that rhythm. So I'm singing a rhythm to him over the phone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's bizarre. No, I think that the admiration for a musician of that distinction is important. I'm delighted that you're doing that tomorrow night. No, thank you. I've, I've, it's one of those things where I thought about it a lot, and I kept saying, you know, we always do these things when people are not around. And um, I wanted to give Wayne his flowers now. Mm -hmm. I wanted to let him know what he means to us, man. Because he is, he is, he's meant so much to me in my life. I remember at Jazz Fest in New Orleans, he told me a, a story that turned my life around, man. 
he talked about this woman who was a classical violinist and uh, she would always go out for auditions, but her playing style was very aggressive and very passionate. So she would always lose the audition because she wasn't a sectional player. Right. Right. And she got really depressed about it. And her mom called her and her mom could hear in her voice that something was wrong. And uh, her mom told her, she said, well, listen, baby, you know, it takes courage to be happy. And when Wayne told me that, man, it, 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 it's like one of those things, you know how you hit things at the right time in your life? I was struggling with this whole notion of being an artist and paying homage to the history and all of this stuff. And when he said it takes courage to be happy, what that meant was, to me was stop following. Stop following. Be yourself. You know, you have a vision. Really go after that. And I wrote this tune, you know, called Passionate Courage as a result of it because it, it just, everything flipped. So he gave you the story. Yeah, but, but he always does that. I mean, Wayne is the type of guy, you know, whenever you're around him, man, it's like a lesson. Not only in life, but in music, everything. I mean, it, you know, and, and he can just be talking about anything, but he's such a brilliant mind and person, you know, I just, I just love being around him. You have to watch Herbie Hancock around him, you know, because yeah. they're best friends, yeah. you know. But Herbie turns into like a little kid around Wayne, you know, because... Wayne will say something and I'll hear, right, right. <laughs> they finish each other's sentences. Yeah, oh, my God. I think the best album, at least one of the best, was Crossings. Beautiful. Did you see the tour when they, when they, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, it was, we, we opened up for them in Arizona once when they were doing that. It was just Herbie and Wayne doing duo. Okay, when you talk about artists and like being true to yourself, when Al Gore was running for president, they had a big uh, uh, donor thing for him in New Orleans at the Rich Carlton. Okay. And I was working at the Bunk Institute at the time, and, and we had a lot of people who were very close to, to the Gore campaign, you know, being a part of the Monk Institute. So they had Herbie and Wayne Shaw come to this donor event to play duo. Now, these are not jazz fans. These are political people. <laughs> and though you think those dudes would water down what they did for them? No, thank you. No way. And it was funny, because I'm the only one in the room going, woo! <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I mean, I, that was another lesson for me. Just go ahead and be who you are. No Misty tonight. No, baby. They didn't know. If you couldn't follow it, shame on you. Shame on you. That um, you another album. Uh, uh, this is the one your bounce album, okay. Footprints. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another one that really caught my my ear and imagination on was a uh, magnetic, the tune magnetic. Oh wow! And uh, I still don't know what meter that's in. You know what's interesting about magnetic? Because okay, man, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm about to have class. It's a black. It's a black. Uh, I, I need a chalkboard. <laughs> uh, that tune is a direct reflection of what Wayne has taught me. I thought so. I thought yeah, so. I got you doing it. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, because... I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things... I, I teach this thing. My, my, my composition teacher, Roger Dickinson, used to teach this thing to me called If I Could Tell You I Would. And uh, If I Could Tell You I Would is a, a thing that try to helps you to understand how innovation is standing right in front of your face, but you don't 
recognize that all the time. And long story short is if I, what I do in the class is I have people just create sentences, you're only using those words and they'll come up with sentences, right? Which makes sense. But then I will say, could, could tell, if, 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 could tell, would, would tell, tell, could tell, tell, would tell, tell. You know what I mean? No, I, I okay. So, so go most ahead, people go, go, oh, and I'm like, yeah, there's things right in front of your face, but so we're so retrograde. conditioned to think conventionally that we don't think outside the box. So it's retrograde, inverted. Exactly. All that noise. Right. So, so with, with that tune, I taken that first, I taken the first melody, uh, and I'd written it on all of these degrees and harmonized it. But having it come back the same way all the time was monotonous, mm-hmm. right? So when you hear it the second time, instead of going, I go, right? So, and then I just break up little pieces so of it and add syncopation to it. Now, is that would you say that's a form of composition for you, or that's a form of composition that's been known? For, the greatest example of that is did 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 da that one exactly. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really we have some young musicians in the audience, and I think they're taking notes. I hope. They- yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, just check it out. When it always amazes me when people say, "Well, man, see what I'm trying to do." No, I don't know. No, 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 no. Just no. do it. Hale Smith, who was a great composer that I studied with too. Hale Smith saw one of my compositions, man, and he cracked me up because as, as he was opening up a bottle of wine in my lesson when I was still underage, um, he goes, it seems like you're trying to control this amount of space without having the ability to control this amount of space. Mm-hmm. Another great lesson. You mentioned Roger Dickerson. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to find the score to his New Orleans Piano Concerto. Oh, if you have a copy or no, I can get it. No, I don't. I don't have a copy, but I, I'll, maybe I can ask him. I'd appreciate it. it. Roger Dickinson is probably one of the greatest composers a lot of people don't know of. And you did you you studied with him? He's the guy that taught me everything I know. Yeah. And man, I mean, so when my opera goes to the Kennedy Center, when Champion goes to the Kennedy Center, I flew Roger and his wife up for the premiere as a thank you. You know, so we go to this dinner afterwards. And a good friend of my wife's, she's, her name's Tracy. Tracy is very inquisitive. You know, she's not a musician, but she's just very inquisitive. So she's sitting next to Roger, and she's asking Roger questions about composition. And Roger, the first thing on his mouth, he goes, well, everybody knows four bar phrases are the death knell of creativity, right? And I'm sitting there going, I thought that was mine. That was it. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was mine. And then he said something else, and I go, Wait a minute, I thought that was mine too. You know, I'm like, please don't ask him no more questions. <laughs> so I just started to realize like everything that I teach and everything that I've thought about has come from him. Yeah. And he studied his his guy was Howard Swanson. Oh really? I yeah. didn't know that. Uh-huh. That was that was the guy that he he studied with. So the the thing that's and this is also the other thing that's interesting about New Orleans, you will be in contact with some very deep thinking people and not realize it because that's not the most important thing to them. You know, having a relationship, you know, having contact with people is more important to them than to prove how much knowledge they have. This may be an example, that he may be an example of what you said a little earlier, that uh, New York is about what you've accomplished, 
and the New Orleans ethic ethos is about what you can do. Oh, oh, of course. Listen, Roger, I'm going to tell you how, how important he is to me. Every major event, musical major event in my life, I called him. You know, when Spike called me to, to uh, uh, write, write Jungle Fever, you know, I called Roger. I said, man, I don't know what to do. I got this project, and I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking Roger's going to give me, like, some concrete, you know, advice. He goes, trust your training. Really, dude? What is <laughs> and when it came time to do the opera, my first opera, when I was working with our Opera Theater St. Louis, called them up. I said, Roger, these people want me to write an opera. And then his thing was, don't write opera, just tell a story. That's what you've been doing all your life? Trying to. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the comments. I, I've known him by reputation. Uh, and again, he's another New Orleans musician, mm -hmm. a genius. The, yes, definitely. The not famous geniuses of definitely. New Orleans. He wrote a piece called uh, Louis, uh, Rock Room for Louis Armstrong. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> they were rehearsing it with the Baton Rouge Symphony, and he's riding back to New Orleans with the concertmaster. Concertmaster's like telling him, Roger, uh, there's some rhythms in that piece that I think are maybe difficult for the orchestra. We may have to rethink those. And Roger goes, okay, well, that's so interesting because they're little kids who play those rhythms in the French Quarter every night. It's called syncopation. It's called syncopation. <laughs> right, let's turn, uh, again, you, your life has had so many, your musical life has had so many marvelous reinventions. Uh, your film writing, mm -hmm. film score writing. Uh, you t was uh, Jungle Fever the first p score you did with, with Spike Lee? Jungle Fever was the first score, but I wrote, I had written one scene in Mo Better Blues. That's how it all started. Okay. You know, uh, we were doing a pre-recorded music. Spike heard me playing something on the piano and asked to use it. But we recorded it just as a solo trumpet piece, you know. And then when he got it in the editing room, it felt naked. And then he goes, hey, man, you think you could write a string arrangement for it? And that's when I lied and said yes. But, that, but that's, also, that's also when I called Roger. I'm like, hey, there you, go. you know, what, what, there you what go. do I do? Yeah, it's good to have that angel on your shoulder. Oh man, I mean, you know, that's why I was telling. That's why I said it earlier. I know that I've been blessed. You know, the people that have been in my life along the way have all been great, great inspirations. Wait a minute. Maybe I have this backwards, but I thought Spike's father, Bill Lee, had written some parts of of Jungle Fever. No, not Jungle Fever. No, what he was it? He had done something with... with Maybe there's son. some songs in there. I can't remember. It's been so long. But I did the score for Jungle Fever. Okay. And it was funny because, you know, when I did the one scene in Mo' Better Blues, first of all, I come in with the... I had done the, the score. And I come in and I give it to Bill. And, man, my orchestrations were horrible. I can't even listen to it. You know, because I didn't know. I didn't know much about orchestration at the time. Uh, but, but Bill Lee goes, no, you wrote it. You conducted. Ouch. I was like, excuse me? Who? So I got, man, and listen, it was from my high school training. We used to do sight singing classes where you had to conduct mm -hmm. and then sing the rhythms and all that. So this hand was cool. <laughs> I could, I, I, one, two, three, four. I know, and one, two, three, all, Wait all that. Out. Man, this hand didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, so I wound up just being a one-handed conductor th that day. It's funny you used to say sight. It just brings back memories for me, sight singing. 
yes. with movable dough and yes. all that. <laughs> yes. all that noise. It was interesting, by the time I got to Oberlin, I'd been playing, I mean, grew up playing gospel music. Mm -hmm. So I could hear all these chord changes. Right. I couldn't read them as well. I mean, the other classically trained play, uh, players uh, could read them, but they couldn't hear them. Right. Well, that, that's, that, and that's always a dilemma. You know, it's kind of like what Art, Art Blake used to tell us all the time. Being an artist is a struggle between your brain and your heart. I had to write this stuff down. It's <laughs> a beautiful metaphor. Well, well same with the, the films, uh, film scores. You've done, what, 30? I don't know. That's okay, not, we won't yeah, worry about the yeah, number. Yeah, yeah, more than 30, that's for sure. Yeah, somewhere in there. I, you know, something I noticed about, and this maybe spikes the, the propensity of Spike Lee's ear and heart, is that he tends to, to mix genres in, in an interesting way that is effective. Mm -hmm. Uh, he got game uses the Aaron Copeland scores. Yeah, yeah. Appalachian Spring, Hoedown, whatever. Which the other a lot of people wouldn't have done. Who on earth would have done that and set it no. in uh, yeah. New Jersey? Trenton, and it's New not Jersey. just music. If you listen, if not just music, if you watch the film Summer of Sam, yeah, there's he took. I think it's Yogi Berra. They call it. They call on a baseball game, and you see uh, David Berkowitz tracking this woman. So and so comes up for the pitch. And he's, oh, there's a swing and a miss. Right, right, right. And then the next thing you know, he he moves on to somebody else. He uses that commentary to, he uses that to make commentary on the scene. Yeah, so this, this what struck me about I mean, it's a wonderful film and uh, Denzel and, and mm -hmm. True and that that this it, it seemed jarring at first, but by the twenty minutes in, you didn't notice it, and it worked. It's interesting. That it you worked. Said. Yes. And it was, so he's using Aaron Copeland's yeah. scores uh -huh. and Public Enemy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I'm about to ask you about your film, uh -oh. uh, later films about how you reacted to this kind of his instinct to make these juxtapositions. I, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I, I, I thought it was brilliant because, you know, what it did was it allowed it allowed me to think more of in a universal space. And then all of those songs really put you in the space. Say that again. So, you know, one of the things me and Spike talked about when we were doing these movies is that, you know, this producer, you know, made an idiotic comment about Malcolm X, about how he has to sell this movie all over the place. Well, it keyed into my mind that, okay, the music doesn't need to be genre-specific because we want everybody to experience the film. So if you watch his score, if you watch his films, the scores take on a very universal approach, you know, to, it's to telling a story as opposed to saying, oh, it's this period or it's Brooklyn here. And no, I'll, I allow him to do that with all of the other songs. So if you watch Inside Man, it takes on a whole different experience because he has that Indian artist, his song that opens up the film. So he called it a Bollywood joint. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think. So, so you found that to be actually liberating. You're not working in a specific genre. Very liberating, you know, because then for me, and, 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 and I, let me just say this too, man, because people don't really understand my relationship with Spike. Spike is the most unique filmmaker I've ever worked with. Obviously, he's the first, but he's still the most unique in that the only thing he worries about is what, are, what is the thematic material for different characters and things like that. And he doesn't want me to do orchestral mock-ups with computers. He wants to hear it on the piano. Really? So I would make these recordings of all of these themes on the piano, and then we'd sit down, 
and we spot the film, go through the film scene by scene. And then he would say, I think, you know, if it were on the CD, he goes, I think number three should be so-and-so, number seven should be so-and-so. And we'd go through it that way, right? He wouldn't hear any other music until we got to the scoring stage. He never would want to combine, hear which direction I'm going in or any of that stuff. So Still doesn't so to just day. on the piano gave him enough information. Uh-huh. And then what I noticed is when we get when we would get to the scoring stage in the full orchestra, you know, he's trying to experience like experience it like the audience would for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that I try to tell young filmmakers, I'm like, see, a guy like that, he puts that much trust in you as an artist. Don't you think I'm gonna try to dot every I and cross every T twice? You know what I mean? I'm not going to take that level of trust for granted. You know, so, because I made that mistake on one film with him, um, Miracle at St. Anna. I got excited. It's a war picture. It starts out with a big battle scene, yeah, right? Yeah. So for me, I'm like, ooh, this is my moment. I can write all of my stravinsky yeah, rhythmic, catastrophe music. You know, have the orchestra do all this kind of crazy stuff. And we did that key when he goes, nah, 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 nah. He says, which is kind of ironic given where my career is going now. He said, it needs to be more operatic. I just want to hear the theme, right? So he wanted the music to make commentary on the scene, not be a part of the scene. That's a very, if, if I have the scene correct, it's a very complicated scene. You have, uh, yes. Uh, Axis Sally is on the microphone talking to these black soldiers who are more walking into a they're walking in the, in, the, in the front, and one guy like, "Kill me now! Kill me Kill now!" Me now. Yeah. yeah, he's he's freaking out. And then the other guy, Amari Hardwick, is playing one of the characters. Then all of a sudden, he gets shot, and then the action's on, and the gunfire wipes out the platoon in the water. Yeah. And but it, what you yeah. did there was really interesting. Uh, like I should say, you you dispense with the drums and cymbal crashes and noise. And yeah. But you wrote this very soft, slow moving. Not dirge, but mm-hmm. adagio. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily sad. It, it, it had a melancholy to it, but it wasn't... You know what's interesting about you saying that, man? It took a lot of patience to do that. Because, you know, I, I had to... Back then, I'm, I'm much better at it now, but you got to remember that still was kind of in the early part of some of my film what, career. What year is that? Uh... Oh, I can't remember. I'm bad with dates. Oh, well, I got it right here. Uh-oh. 2006. Okay. It came out. Okay. So um, I would watch scenes over and over and over again before I would even write a note. Because for me, I wanted to learn the pace of the scene, get a sense of where things shift in the scene. And with that scene, man, that scene goes on for a while. With them just And the whole idea is that they're quiet, you know, in this field. And for me, it was nerve-wracking because they're out in the open. Mm-hmm. So the music has to be as suspenseful as that moment. So I try not to... One of the things about, you know, working with him, man, he he's really brilliant at putting everything on the screen. So there's no need for me to, like, push any emotional buttons or anything like that. It's really just about trying to be right there with the moment with him. You know? Well, the, the layers of that scene, uh, the woman is on the microphone talking to the soldiers who are mm-hmm. advancing into... who are getting ready to be wiped out. Mm-hmm. And she's saying to these black soldiers, Buffalo right. soldiers, right. You know, why are you fighting the white man's war? Right. Uh, so this, this kind of a characterization, he's getting a message across while he's making right. a film about war. Mm-hmm. And they do get wiped out, except for a handful yes. to go on. Yes. And your writing 
sort of predicts the pathetic situation they're in, the political situation. And that was the idea, because for me, when I first did it, I was playing up the action, the excitement mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. being in the middle of the firefight. First instinct. And for him, no, it was like, no, we need to make commentary on what these guys have given up for this country. You know, that was the whole idea uh, for the entire film, actually. But uh, once I had to redo that scene, it kind of set the tone for everything else. In fact, there was, I think most of the score is fairly subdued in quarters. There yeah. Is, even in the last battle scene, yeah. it's the same sense of... of I mean, if, even if you watch um, uh, The Five Bloods, right? That battle scene, man, it took me five days to write that scene because I knew that Spike wouldn't want any action music for it, so it has to be very melodic and very thematic. Well, you know, for you guys, that that, that could get old real quick. Yeah, you know a lot of I mean? people dying and Yeah, blood. like Gil Evans said, I can only tell you I love you once. If I tell you I love you twice, you may look at me crazy. <laughs> you know, so I, I I literally had to sit down and figure out how do I manipulate this melody and keep it interesting. You know, for I forgot how long that scene is, but it felt like it went. It's on very forever. long. It, yeah, it, it the feeling forever. is very long. Mm-hmm. And isn't that the film that at the end of it, the entire members of the orchestra are, are listed in the credits? And, and we did it on all of the films. Did you? Yeah, that's Spike. I, I've really, I've never seen that before. I know. You, you, re- you still don't see it 65 member orchestra and they're all right. listed one. Cellos, that's, that's violins. Spike. Spike does that. Out of respect for, yep. for the contribution. Man, Spike is, is, he gets a bad rap because, you know, he's, 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 an, he's a New Yorker, right? But he's an African American man. So, you know, people take his, what they think is hate. But it's, no, it's, it's him being a New Yorker. They just, that's the way they talk. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's, it's not hate. It's just, it's just the way he is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm laughing because me and him have had like discussions. We were, we were on our way to a Nick game one time and we had a discussion in the back of this car and the driver, man, the dude kept looking in the mirror like something was about to go down. <laughs> That's what friendship's all about, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, you, you mentioned Five Bloods. Um, were there any particular challenges writing that, given that this, it took place in a foreign country? The challenge, the challenge, man, the challenge on that film... Because most of his films are set in the city. Yeah, but the challenge on that film was to live up to the performances by Delroy Lindo, Chadwick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because when I saw it, I went... You got to remember, this is coming off of Black Klansman, right? Black Klansman was my first Oscar nomination, right? We're at the Oscar show, and the show concludes. We're just milling around in the building, and Spike goes, I got to go, man, because I'm flying out. I'm like, brother, you just got your first Oscar. You know, no, he says, I'm shooting another movie, right? And I went, wow. So I remember when he showed me Black Klansman, I was like, I always have this 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 moment of of total fear, you know, and a lot of composers go through that, um, which I was happy to find out. Um, you look at something that's like really good, and you have a oh my god moment. What am I gonna do, mm-hmm. you know? And when he showed me the Five Bloods, Delroy's performance, we were so heartbroken that he didn't get a nomination yeah, that year. I agree. Yeah, because his performance was masterful. I mean, masterful. That 
the 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 thing the the thing that people don't really under maybe you guys do because you're into the arts, but the general public doesn't know that you shoot these scenes out of sequence. You know what I mean? They're shot out of sequence. So when you see it together and there's this development of the character throughout the film, that means this guy is keeping he's gotta make track. It yeah, he's keeping track of where he is throughout the story at all times. And that's a that's a that's a brilliant, brilliant skill to have. And of course, Chadwick, man, it was it was uh you know, of course we were all heartbroken by by losing our brother, you know, because man, Spike told me we didn't know. He said he didn't complain. He said he was running up and down the hills and we finished the scene and he'd be the one, he'd be the first one to say, let's go back to one, do it again. You know what I mean? Uh, and they developed, and you can tell, man, they developed a real brotherhood, that whole crew on the mm-hmm. set. Because it's, it's, you see it in the film. Yeah. You know? And I think the challenge for me was to not to get in the way of that. You know, not to get in the way of that. I remember... One of the, 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 the best scenes for me to work on was when they actually started to find the goal. You know, that Going whole thing the on the hill. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun working on the entire film, but that, but that scene was probably... Why, why was that particularly fun? I, because it just kind of, for me, it just seemed that that scene kept unfolding. Like, there were things that were happening. There were little confrontations with them in the front. You think that that would right, be right. the genesis, you know, the, the most important thing in the team. And then next thing you know, it turns into something else. And then all of a sudden they find a goal and now they get excited. Mm-hmm. And it just kept going on and on. It was, it was like something that just kept unfolding, uh, which was kind of cool to work on. So you do react to, the, to narrative, which, which sort of, it seems like you've had a, in, in all of these uh, elements of your musical life, you seem that you've reacted to narrative. I mean, you speak of your compositions having stories, the wing shorter inspiration for compositions having stories. It seemed to be, an, it's led you naturally to write opera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my father was a baritone. So I heard a lot of operatic music in the house growing up, uh, unwillingly. Um, with his technical broadcast on Saturday? No, 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 no. My dad had his RCA Victor recording collection that I was not allowed to touch. Ouch. You know what I mean? You remember the records with the plastic, you know, the, the, the wax paper, and, and, you know, you grabbed them out like this. You never touched the disc. Yeah, my father, he would put those recordings on, man, and you would hear doors slamming in our house because... He would just sit in the front, you know, and listen to La Boheme or Carmen or Rigoletto or any of those things. Mm-hmm. So it took me, when I started writing opera, to realize that those melodies stuck in my head. Uh, they were still there. Yeah. And, it, and the, the odd thing about it is that it was, it was always there, even when I was writing the jazz compositions. You know, none of my jazz compositions are like filled with notes. You don't hear me write, but a little bit, dip it up, but a little, I don't. I don't do that, you know. I'm always trying to write melodies because I want you to be able to sing it and I want you to be able to take it with you. And dance. Yeah. So, you know, my father had a huge, huge impact. And then look, man, he would, if somebody came on PBS singing something, man, he would scream, what? hey, come here, come here, come here, come here. And I'd be in the back of the house. Come here, come here, come here. Now sit down, sit down. So you see, that's music. 
That's music. See all that stuff you listen to all them notes? That's too many notes. Listen to that. That's beautiful. Right? So I, I got a chance to hear all of this stuff because of him. And there was another guy in the, the, there was an organist at my church. His name was Osceola Blanchett, C-H-E-T. And I used to think he was my grandfather, right? Okay. He was the black guy that taught my dad and all these other guys okay. opera. Okay. So I used to think my dad was strange, man, because Wednesday night they always had rehearsal at Mr. Jim Blanchett's house. And sometimes he would bring me and it would be these black men in the singing opera. Um, you know what I mean? So I heard all of this stuff a lot growing up when I was a kid, not thinking that it was lasting with me. And then I met my, one of my rehearsals, you know, in St. Louis, and I just got emotional. Cause I, I'm like, wow. I've I'm heard like, this before. Dude, it was, it, I can't explain to you the feeling of like, you know, my dad hovering over me talking about, I told you. <laughs> Too many notes. <laughs> Not enough tunes. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's ch- let's chat about your operas. Uh, and again, it, it's an it's an amazing addition to, or exposition of of your career. Um, how how did the champion come about? Was that your idea? Did someone bring it to you? No, it was. It was well. You know, I've been a boxing fan for a lump for a number of years. When they first approached me about writing an opera, they wanted me to write an opera about Hurricane Katrina. And I kept saying, nah, it's too close to that. I don't, because uh, we had, we, we, some of my friends, we had this weird experience with uh, the TV show. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was the HBO series, uh, Treme, right? And uh, we heard about it and we were all excited. And I remember, you know, the, the night of the premiere, a friend of ours had a party at his house. And we all gathered to watch it. We were excited to see it. But when the show started, it just brought back memories and bad feelings, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh my God, it, it was a deep night, right? And I kept saying to myself, I can't write an opera about that right now. We're still too close to that. Mm-hmm. So um, I, my friend uh, who was a heavyweight champion, his name is Michael Bent. He beat Tommy Morrison for the title. Um, he he's he's my that's my dude. He told me about Emil Griffith, right? And uh, when I read the book, the line in the book that got me was, "I killed a man, and the world forgave me. Mm-hmm. I loved a man, and the world wanted to kill me." And um, that that to me said everything. But when I first brought it to uh, St. Louis, they didn't get it. They thought I wanted to write a boxing opera. And I was like, no, 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 no. Read the book. I said, but boxing is the backdrop mm-hmm. to this, but it's really about redemption, you know. And when they read the book, they were all over it. They were in. They were. They were in. They were in. And uh, we just kind of went from there. Michael Christopher wrote the libretto, and he did an amazing job writing the libretto because one of the main op- arias is uh, uh, what makes a man a man, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that aria almost wrote itself, you know. It, it, I go through these things, man, where I'm writing. Sometimes I get so involved with it, it it's like an emotional, cathartic experience. You know what I mean? Because yeah. when, I, when he's saying, what makes a man a man? Is it the clothes he wears? Is it, you know, I'm, I'm feeling all of that because, of the, well, let me back up. The, the, the reason why I'm feeling all of that is because when I was thinking about Emil writing the opera, 
I thought about the first time I won a Grammy, you know, I'm at the Grammy Awards, they call my name, without thinking, I turn to my wife, I give her a kiss, and I go up to get the award. Well, this dude became welterweight champion of the world, right? And couldn't celebrate that openly with anybody that he loved. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm like, wow, that's, that's, wait, wait. that's, that's deep, you know what I mean? And to, to take it further, to see what happened with Benny Perrette, people don't know, he killed, I don't know if you guys know the story, but he killed his opponent in the ring. They had fought twice before, each one a fight. And for Benny to try to get an edge over Emil, he called him out as being gay during a press conference, which is something we, that didn't happen in those days. And uh, Emil had a bad premonition about the fight. He didn't want to do the fight. He, he tried and, to call and, it off. Didn't yeah, he tried to call it off. And back then, they were fighting like two months apart, mm-hmm. you know, which is something you shouldn't do. Well, Benny Pratt had fought Gene Fulmer Gene just Fulmer. before that, the bruiser. And Gene Fulmer was a heavy hitting dude, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, he was a heavy weight category. Yeah, so, so um, if you, in the documentary, they show you how um, Emil... Hit, hit, hit Benny 17 times, less than seven seconds. That's, in the, that's a line in the opera. And my man fell into a coma, never regained consciousness. After that, Emil was just like distraught. And you can see, even when he's tried to fight, his opponent back up in a corner, he never would chase him. So I'm saying all that to say, I'm like, that's got to be a heavy thing. Because in the documentary, this is what got me too, in the documentary, he decide, and this is all in the opera. He decides to go and see Benny's son, Benny Jr. And when he meets Benny Jr., Benny Jr. says, "We just want to let you know that my mom couldn't make it; she just couldn't do it." And Emil goes, "I understand." And he says, "But just we want you to know we don't harbor any ill will towards you." And when he said that, Emil lost it and just started crying right, uncontrollably. Yeah. Like you can tell, he's been carrying this around for decades, right? Mm-hmm. So knowing that and actually seeing it, right, when writing this opera, to me, it's I'm I'm feeling all of these emotions, you know, in all of these pieces, because look, I'm I'm, you know, I don't I don't consider myself to be the wisest person on the planet, but I don't care who you love, I really don't, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. I care about how you treat other people. Mm-hmm. The authenticity. Know? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, we're all on this planet, man. We're all trying to find our way through this, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's no need for, for anybody to be angry or, 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 or hurtful or hateful towards somebody else just because you don't understand them. So when you say redemption, you mean that moment with the family, with the, the, the son? The moment with the family. That's it's, the whole opera is about that, that moment. And man, when we did it, Arthur Woodley, uh, who passed on, God rest his soul, that dude, man, I wrote the opera. Mm-hmm. I, it took me three years to write it. And whenever it got to that moment, I was a sniveling idiot. I just, I, it, it would break me down every time because it's, you know, it's, it's really about people didn't, and this is another thing, we, we couldn't show this in the opera. We didn't have the time, didn't have enough time, but. Another thing people don't know is that they were friends. Correct. And yeah, they used to play basketball together. They didn't live too far from and, each other. And uh, Emil Griffith was a singer. He had a yeah. calypso band or something, <laughs> yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a character. Yeah. Man. He was a character. And they both were immigrants. Yes. 
uh, Virgin Islands for Griffith yes. and Cuba. For, and, and Emil was still living when we produced the opera. I did, yeah. Yeah, but he was, he was suffering from dementia and he was living in a nursing home. I didn't go see him. I didn't, you know, some other people went to visit him. Uh, I didn't need that at that moment in time. Um, but his son came to the performance and Benny Perrette Jr. came to the performance too. So this redemption, uh, this Jesus moment, um, also plays a big part in your second opera, uh, conceptually. Yeah. In a way. And not, no, no, so, and just for the audience's sake, uh, Champion is going to be reprise uh, premiered at the New York Metropolitan Opera this a- coming April. Yes. Twenty twenty three. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Which is the tenth year anniversary. Is that I right? I keep finding all new stuff. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, 2013, yeah. Was it 2013? And yeah, 2020? you know what? That's right. I didn't think about that. That's right. See that? Yeah. Okay. You got to come to San Diego more often. I, I, I need to move. <laughs> so so what, here you are 10 years later with this very powerful story, and again, how it affects you and, and will affect us in hearing it. Uh, what do you, Any changes you're making? Have you rethought yes, passages? Some, yes, there's rethought? some changes. Yes, there's you, are some you changes. willing to tell us? No. Or? Okay. <laughs> No, no. I mean, we've added an aria, uh, I think two arias, and then there were a lot of spoken lines in the first production that are being sung now. Okay. So little things like that. Okay. But it's not fundamentally, the storyline is not. No, no, no. It's, it's the same opera. Okay. And that was 2013. You say it took you five years to write that. What about the, as many of you know, Fire Shut Up in My Bones premiered at the Met. Mm-hmm. It was the opening opera of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, featuring the first opera presented by an African-American at the Met, which is going to be reprised again. Yes. So tell us about the date and timing of that. Well, I don't know. I think it's going to be in 2024. Um, I, you know, man, to be honest, it still feels like a dream. <laughs> you know, I, you know it's, it's one of those things. I've been knowing Peter Gelb for a long time because when he was at Sony Records, we did some we did some records together. I think we did three records together while he was at Sony. Um, and he was then, also the manager for Vladimir Horowitz. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he moved on over to the Met. And even when he moved over to the Met, I never thought about having a production go to the Met. That man, that was the furthest thing from my mind. <laughs> and then he called me up. It was like that Sonny Rollins thing, you know. He called me up, and I'm like, "What? You want what?" And he said, "Yeah, we want to we want to do Fire Shut Up in My Bones." And I went, "Okay." And it just started to unfold because then this journal, when they made the announcement, the journalist called me and they said, well, what do you feel about being the first African-American? And I'm like, bro, that can't be true. And he goes, yeah, you're the first African-American. I'm like, no, no, not, not in New York. You know what I mean? The first fully staged, yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. I was doing an interview at the Met and somebody went and pulled out the ledger. Well, the for Shows. all of the these things that were William uh William Grant Still's name is in there three times. Right? Mm-hmm. And the commentary made about his music was disrespectful. I can imagine. It man, it made me so angry because I'm sitting here saying, You are discounting this man's talent because he doesn't write like what you think he should write. Mm-hmm. Stories and, to, that you and, think and, that, and that's the old story in the art world for been that way for eons. You know what I mean? But for me, and here's the other thing too that shocked me. 
I, and I, I got to go to look at it again because I took pictures of it. Uh, but there's some women name in the, in the book, too. And it was funny because you got to remember, I'm on camera. <laughs> got to react. You know why, why they're showing me this thing. You know what I mean? I think it was for CBS. And I was like, oh. But I'm looking at it going, wow, this is, this is, this is incredible. So to Peter Gelb's credit, the George Floyd thing had a huge impact on him, as like it did for most of us. And he felt like he needed to do something. So this was his moment in time. Now, as a result, even Yannick said, you know, who's the conductor of, of Metropolitan Opera? Yannick said, we have to do stories that will resonate with people's lives. Here. Yes, now. Look, when my opera champion went to New Orleans, this guy said something, man, this, this, this older black gentleman came up to me, man, and after the show, and he shook my hand, and he said, if this is opera, I'll come. That stuck with me. And I went, right. I'm like, we're the musicians. We're the ones who love the history. The we're gen- the ones who can sit the down messengers. and go. Yes. But for the general public, man, you know, I'm getting emotional now thinking about the Met seeing these, this one woman who grew up, who I grew up with in New Orleans, she was 92 years old, got on a train, came from Baltimore in a wheelchair to be there. There were so many people who had to witness this, mm-hmm. this, this event. And one of the things that brought me the most pleasure was the fact that there were so many young, talented African-American singers that people were hearing for the first time. Mm-hmm. This journalist, man, man, he made me so angry because he said, do you think your opera is going to encourage young black people to sing opera? I'm like, are you kidding? Where have you been? I, right. And I said, man, I said, this is your fault because you haven't been covering them. I said, but they've been here for generations. You know, they've always had the talent and had the goods, but not the opportunity. You know, I don't know. How, And here's the wild thing about Fire Shut Up In My Bones. I didn't realize it was an all-black cast. We didn't set out to do that. That was just part of the story, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a church scene, right, in Fire Shut Up In My Bones. Yes, 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 yes. Well, and and I'm just going to tell you guys this, you know, just so you can understand some of the, the, the backdrop of what these singers were going through. When we did the church scene, you know, a lot of the chorus people wanted to sing in the church scene off stage mm-hmm. to fill up the sound. Right, right. They don't have experience singing gospel music, right? Syncopation. Yes. So it was a, it was a bit of an issue, right? And they contracted. Well, some of those singers got upset. Mm-hmm. But what the but, but but what the singers in the production had to make them realize. This is what we go through all the time in, re- in reverse. We go through this all the time. We're always discounted for being able to sing in productions, you know. So I'll never forget, man, when it went to Chicago Lyric, um, Casey Lemons, who wrote the libretto, we all went to the party after the premiere. And, and Casey and myself was, was seated at a table where we could see all of the young people um, you know, in the in the restaurant, milling and having a good time. And 
one of the things we realized is that the most beautiful part of this experience was for them taking ownership of this and them being recognized for what it is they were doing. It had nothing to do with Casey and me. We just provided the vehicle for them, right? But they got up there and they did their thing. And they brought the house down for eight performances, sold out, you know? And there wasn't a dry eye in the place. Now, you know, you can say, you know, I wrote the music. Nah, 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 nah. Somebody got to sing it. Because if I sang it, y'all be crying you're, for a different reason. You're not reason. coming back. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, that was that was that was the that was the thing, you know. And I and I all have to tip my hat to Peter because he was the one that made it happen, you know. And the reason why Champion is is coming in now is because he caught me, you know, the night of the uh, the well, it was not the night because it was a matinee. After the last performance, I go up on stage to do a curtain call and the curtain comes down. I turn around and there's Peter Gell. And he goes, well, we don't want to wait because they're, they're commissioning me to write an opera for them. Third one. Yep. Yeah. Third one. And uh, he said, we don't want to wait for, for a third opera. We want to do Champion next year. Right there. And I went, well, okay. I mean, you know, this whole journey in the operatic world has been one that... Has, has taken me back, you know, like I said, because of my father and, and, and my relationship with him and what this means to a community. You know, it's a, it's a powerful thing because I know you've had experience in this. Roger Dickinson had experience in this. Hale Smith had experience in this. And these are people who are great composers whose music has never gotten heard. Not at that stage. No. So, you know, when I'm being put in this position, dude, I was at every rehearsal. I'm like, if if this is going to fall on my shoulders, we're going to do this to the best of our ability. I'm willing to sink with the ship if it goes down. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to have any regrets because there are too many people who wanted this opportunity. Cool. William Grant Steele? The thing, I, f I forgot to tell you this part. The thing that got me about the William Grant Steele piece I just heard, uh, what's the highway? High, uh, high, not high, high Highways, uh, I forgot the name of it. But I just heard his opera, that one done in uh, St. Louis. Mm. And I'm sitting there listening to it going, wow, this is kind of, this is like a jazz thing. Wow, it's got all of these cool harmonic things going on. Wow, this is kind of cool. And then I get there and some of the comments were amateurish. Didn't have the qualifications to writing proper opera. Those were the things that were said about him. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So, look, I love what the Met is getting ready to do. So they started with me, and then they, they brought in a young female composer. They brought in a young Asian composer. They're going to do um, uh, Anthony's opera, uh, opera Malcolm, Malcolm X. And then there was, a, there was a fifth person I can't remember but but the whole idea is to like open up the doors, you know, to do something new. Nobody loves Lava one more than me. Mm -hmm. It brought back your father's memories, man, bro. I mean, you know, and it was funny because I had never seen um, uh, Turandot. I had never seen Turandot live. So while I was there for for my opera, Peter got me tickets for for Turandot. And man, when that curtain opened, all those people that it just blew me away. 
I love that set because the thing about that set, that set deals with dimension, bro, in a way that I never saw. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I kept telling Peter, I'm like, how can I don't have a set like I that? I need a now? second liner. Yeah. <laughs> I need one for a second liner. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, you know. You, I hope you're thinking about or you are uh, documenting this process, a book. Yeah, I've heard this I mean, too. you've got to tell, you've got to. Yeah. We are very appreciative of your time and, and you revealing yourself so uh, sincerely about this. But this is part of American history, too. It's a moment in American history. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think for me, um, I can't see the forest for the trees. Right, right. Because I'm always just trying to get better at what it is that I'm doing. You know, because you got to remember also going into the world of opera, man, it's it's like a free-for-all for all of us because... They're not used to some of the jazz harmonies. I'm new to the operatic world. So we all kind of feel like fish out of water. But man, it, it when it comes together, it just really mm-hmm. it just really clicks and works. And I've been falling in love with the genre, man, now in a way that I was totally not expecting. You know, because the thing also that happens, like with Champion, with Denise, every time we did the production, man, our performance just went. It, every production is just climbing, doing this, you know. So the same thing has been happening with Fire, you know. And I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with Champion at the Met. But uh, have you? Can you reveal the the topic of the third opera? We don't know yet. We, we don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because my wife has a has a big role in that too. <laughs> she's she's the one that brought Fire shut up in my bones to me. Uh, well, actually, a friend of hers showed it to her, and then she brought it to me. Um, so we have some ideas that we're, we're, we're thinking about, we're mulling around. Um, one of them, just from a music, I can't tell you the story, but just from a musical perspective, it takes place in Africa, which for me would be, there's, there's, there's a certain thing about that vocal music in Africa that I love, you know, and I'm very curious about trying to explore that in the operatic world. We're looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Well, I turn this over to our audience. Uh, we have in our presence a remarkable musician, statesman, composer, performer. You must have questions, things you'd like to know about him. You said earlier that you, someone told you, uh, don't write an opera, just tell your story. Mm-hmm. Um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones is Charles Blow's story, but how is it also your story? Well, the reason why I love that story is because uh, being also being from Louisiana, one of the things that resonated with me was the sense of rejection, you know, just for being different. You know, I was a kid who grew up in a neighborhood that was all about sports and I played football. You know, I did that. But walking to the bus stop on the weekend with my horn, going to a lesson was not the most popular thing to do in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Try doing it with your name, Cecil. <laughs> exactly. In Harlem. <laughs> in Harlem, right? <laughs> so you know exactly yeah, what I I'm hear you. Yeah, yeah. I so that, 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 that's what got me about that, you know, because the thing is, it's like, I, I, and the wild part about it, there's a, there's a part of you that tries to acquiesce because you want to be a part, but then you start to realize that's just not who I am. You know, um, and thank God, you know, because who knows what I would be doing if if I'd allowed them to have that much of an effect on what it is that I wanted to do with my life. 
Uh, I really enjoyed uh, hearing about your life and your background, and I want to know what you were going through at the particular time when you uh, wrote the music for Harriet. Ooh. Wow. Um, you know, writing, it's, it's funny. Harriet and the, and the film that I have out now, The Woman King, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, those are two, two films that made me think about the women in my life, my grandmother and my mom, you know, strong personalities, you know, very determined people. And if it weren't for them, you know, I wonder what my life would be. You know, my, my mom, it was always funny. I know we probably all heard this, but my mom was like, don't bring the street in my house. You know, that we act accordingly in here. We do things a different way. So there was always this notion of living up to high ideals, you know? And when I think about Harriet, that's what I thought of. Because my mom is a diminutive woman. She's not big at all, you know, which is always funny to me because if you heard me talk about it, you would think she was 12 feet tall. <laughs> um, so when I was writing, Harriet, writing the music for Harriet, there's something that resonated in me about that story that I felt connected to, that I could understand. So, but, 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 and, and Casey, she kept saying, you know, she didn't want the movie to be like a reflection, you know, like a, like a, um, like a look back. You know, she said, no, I want to treat Harriet as a superhero. You know what I mean? And I really got that. So, and, and one of the things that burned us all a little bit was when people would call it a slave movie. Because we kept saying slavery is about the first five minutes of the movie. The rest of the movie is about this woman and her determination to free these people. And um, I wanted to write some music that would uplift, that would show her strength, but in a way that's not traditional because I didn't want it to be masculine. I wanted it to be powerful and strong, but still have a feminine sense to it. So the scene that I started working on was the scene where she's in the water. You know, she's, mm -hmm. the, you know, there's something about that scene that just resonated with me. And she stops and she starts to pray. You know, um, also, that's one of those things, you know, that I always tell people that I feel blessed about in my career. I've gotten a chance to work on some really great projects that resonate with my life. You know, and Harriet definitely was, was one of them. And I thought uh, Cynthia Revo did an amazing job. You know, she channeled that woman. There were so many things that happened on that set. You know, you know the scene where she's walking the freedom? Casey told me they were struggling trying to get that shot. And just as they finished that shot, the sun had gone down. And there were so many things, you know, going on on that set like that, where, you know, it was like what Harriet says at the end of the film, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Hmm. You know, it was like she was there with all of us, you know, and uh, I, I just feel blessed to be a part of it. What do you feel like was key to your uh, development as a composer? Well, there's a couple of things. You got to be anal. 
you know, to be a composer, because you got to pay attention <clears throat> to everything. And then you have to have this inquisitive nature of, of how things are put together. You know, when I was a kid, me and my, bro- me and my cousin, we were the guys that would take, a ra- take apart the radio to see how it works. You know what I mean? So you, you need to have that sense musically. So <clears throat> when I would listen to the Rite of Spring, right, that piece fascinated me because I could hear Hungarian folklore in the piece, right? And then when I started to really dig deep into it and then learn more about the techniques of, of composition, then I said, oh, that's what he did, but I don't have to do that. I could take the rhythms from New Orleans, the second line, and move those around in such a way where it can create something that's a little different. I could take the harmony that moves around. And if you notice, with the way that I write opera, <coughs> excuse me, um, Puccini, for example, he will write a whole section of music on one tonal center, right? I took the tradition of jazz and how jazz chords move, right? And even though you may not hear those chords move like that, <coughs> they're underneath. So again, it's, com- it's combining what I've studied with what I feel, right? So I would say to you, don't let nobody tell you what you can't do. Listen. Really? I mean, listen, the only thing that can happen is that it could sound horrible. Right. And if it sounds horrible, you just start over. Right. I mean, that that, to, you know, Art Blakey says something to us and he would always make these comments just as a joke, but they would stick with us. He said some, jazz was invented because somebody goofed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, so I kind of think about that. It's like, OK, like we talk about these happy accidents and all of this stuff. Why not take advantage of it? Just try it. And that's the thing Ellis Marcellus used to tell us, Turtle never never gets nowhere unless he sticks his neck out. Okay? So you need to just try stuff. And if it doesn't work, don't say I can't do this. Try again. And try to figure out why it didn't work. Because trust me, I've written some stuff y'all will never hear. As a matter of fact, I don't hear it no more because it is it's in the trash bin. You know what I mean? And it was a great idea while I had it. Mm-hmm. While I was, it was in my mind, I was like, ooh, this is going to be killing. And then you put it down on paper and you start to play and you go, maybe, well, maybe I, well, hold on, maybe I missed something. Let me try. And you go, no, it's just awful. Right? So you got you to gotta acknowledge that. The main thing that I always tell young artists is don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. You know what I mean, man? It, you know, one. I think that's one of the big biggest deterrents to development. You know, because people will say, "Oh, I could do it tomorrow." Oh, man, yeah, blah blah. No, 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 no. Just constantly work, constantly work. My my daughter, my middle daughter, who's a songwriter now, but when she was a little girl, I was always in my studio, right? And you know, with my mixers, computers, and everything. And she didn't know any better. And my studio was kind of it wasn't the neatest studio on the planet, you know what I mean, with the way I wire stuff, right? So she didn't know. She just knew that I was always in there. So when she was in elementary school 
and everybody was talking about what their parents did for a living. She said, my dad works on wires. <laughs> because that's what she knew me that's to be. That's what she saw. Right, that's what she knew me to be all the time. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying, I'm saying that to say is that you got to spend time with it. You got to spend time with it for it to give you something back. You got to respect it, right? So learn the craft. Make sure you learn the craft. That's number one. Don't ignore what it is that you like about music in general. That all of that is valid, bro. All of that. You didn't come here dressed like anybody else. There's a reason for that. You have your own personality, right? I don't know what it is, right? But musically, I would love to find out. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.